following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark 14, it's good to see all of you today. Should do one matter of housekeeping real quick. Did anyone wear the Star Wars dress? <laughs> I see a Star Wars shirt. I've seen a couple of them actually, but that doesn't count. I was corrected. It's not a dress. It was a top and a skirt. But in my world, that's the same thing. So if uh, you were not with us last week, then you're coming in at a slight disadvantage. I'll warn you up front, uh, today is part two of a two-part message, and I'm going to be picking up uh, pretty much exactly where we left off uh, last week with very, very little review. So if you're confused about some of the things that are being said, that explains why. You'll have to go back online and listen to it at some point on your own. But we have a lot to cover, so we're not going to spend a lot of time going back over the past. We're going to be reading here verses four, chapter fourteen, verse fifty-three, all the way to chapter fifteen, verse fifteen, and then, as usual, we'll begin our time together in prayer. So, if you will, please look at verse fifty-three. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands." Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, please um, guide our thoughts today in this passage to understand it properly. This is, um, this is a moment that is unlike so many others that we have seen in our own lives where we've looked for justice and found none. We've seen terrible acts of injustice. This is, of all the acts of injustice ever committed in human history, this has to be the greatest of them all. But I pray that through this we will see it for what it truly is. I pray that you will guide my thoughts as I preach and teach this this morning. May your words be made clear. If there's anything that I have planned to say that is not accurate, that is not in line with your intentions for this passage, please strike that from my lips or from their ears. I pray, Spirit, that you will apply these words very specifically and pointedly to each heart in this room this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask a question just because I'm curious. How many of you went home after last week's message and watched any portion of the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer? Anybody? Okay, a few of them. I I was pretty sure that would be the case because it seems like whenever I talk about something, it ends up happening. Um, It seems to me that generally if I mention something in the middle of a sermon, people will do it. For example, if I mention a restaurant, I'll hear that people went in there afterwards to eat. If I mention a movie, I'll hear that people watched it. It's like I can plant ideas in people's heads. (laughs) The power of suggestion is a weird thing. Like I said, I should probably get paid for this kind of stuff. Um, Okay, subliminal messages aside, or not so subliminal, we're picking up this morning where we left off last time, here in the middle of Jesus' two trials. And I keep saying that there are two trials, but... Technically speaking, it's really just one trial that's broken up into two components or or two phases. The first phase was the one we looked at last time in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. And this records Jesus' appearance before the Jewish high council where he is being formally charged uh, with a crime here in this middle-of-the-night proceeding. And uh, to use a modern American equivalent, if I was trying to find something that would help you relate to that particular trial or phase as best you could, it is closest to our concept of a grand jury hearing. In our system, a grand jury hearing is where charges are determined to see if they will be taken to trial or not. This is the closest example. It's not exactly right, but that's what they're doing. And the goal in line with that, is simply to determine what they're going to charge him with. They already know the outcome they want, and that's death, but they just need to figure out what they're going to charge him with. The official conviction and sentencing component of the trial against Jesus will not come until he gets to the Roman court. And as we saw last week, 
the charge that they agree on based on Jesus' own words here in verse 62 is the charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy specifically because he is claiming to be the Christ and they don't believe he's the Christ. They have predetermined that this statement, this claim on his part cannot possibly be true and because it cannot possibly be true for him to claim it equals blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy in their minds, as you see in verse 64, is death. Now, as all of this was going on up in the chambers of the high priest, there has been another scene unfolding down in the courtyard. Uh, Mark records that scene for us in chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. However, as we pick up this morning from where we left off last time, I don't want to begin there. I want to pick up as the second component of the trial begins here in chapter 15, verse 1. There it is, 15, verse 1. And as we begin, let me remind you of the main question that we are attempting to answer between last Sunday's message and this Sunday's study as well. And the question was, who is at fault in this travesty of justice that will ultimately lead to Jesus' conviction and execution. Who is at fault? We didn't answer that question at all last time. We just worked through the text and then stopped. But by the time we finish today, the responsible party will be identified. And so, just like last time, let's begin by looking at the setting of the second phase of Jesus' trial. Mark writes here in verse 1 that as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, put him in handcuffs, chains, that kind of idea, like he's a violent criminal. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, we have to stop at this point and ask and answer three different questions. Number one, who is Pilate? Well, Pilate, also known as Pontius Pilate, is the Roman governor or a prefect or procurator. You can use any of those titles for him. He was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36. He was appointed to that role by the emperor Tiberius. And as governor, he is responsible for several things. So militarily, he is responsible to keep the peace in the Judean province. And to do this, he would have had about 3,000 soldiers at his immediate control spread out around the Judean countryside. Economically, he's responsible for collecting taxes, okay? Rome says your province has to give X amount of taxes, and so that's his job to make sure that's done. Uh, You remember Matthew, the tax collector? He works for Pilate, not directly. He's like further down the org chart, but you know, he's in that, he's in that department there working for Pilate in the collection of taxes. And judicially and administratively, he is responsible for the overall law and order of the land. Now, that said, in terms of day-to-day administration of things that are going on in and around Judea, he basically let the Jews rule themselves. It was, it was just kind of the Roman way, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But he didn't do it directly. It was done by Jewish authorities. And the reason that this was allowed was because one of his primary tasks in this particular vein was to appoint the king and the high priest who would oversee Israel's uh, official and religious matters. Okay, This is who Pilate is. He's the governor. Question number two. Why, then, do the Jewish religious leaders need to bring Jesus to him? 
And, and to understand this question, you have to understand Rome's philosophy of how to govern a conquered people, okay? Because this, this kind of matters in the context of what's going on throughout the entire story of the gospel. You see, generally speaking, after Rome had conquered your military and or your nation had surrendered to them, they would come in, they would depose all of your current leaders, they would then choose new leaders out of that nation, out of those people who would be loyal to and obey and follow what Rome wanted them to do. They would put those people in charge. They would also put in place a Roman governor to act as Rome's representative. They would give that governor a garrison of soldiers to help keep the peace. And then they would pretty much leave you alone to do as you please. They didn't really care about your day-to-day -day life in terms of you as a conquered nation. If, if you like to do things a certain way and it wasn't against their desires, go ahead. As long as you don't rebel, as long as you pay your taxes, and you basically don't violate any of the major things that Rome wanted, you as a conquered nation, as a conquered people, could pretty much go on with your life as normal. They tried to stay as uninvolved as possible with all the minutia. It just wasn't in their best interest to do so. And this is exactly the setup in Judea. After Rome had conquered Judea, they deposed all the leaders in charge, and then they chose new leaders and put them in place, and then continued to do so as those people either became disloyal or died or whatever happened. So that means that in the story we've been reading so far in Mark's gospel, both Herod the king and Caiaphas the high priest are appointees of Rome. It means both of these guys are dirty, okay? Politically speaking, they may have a good game publicly to the people, but they have been put in their positions by Roman authorities. There is a governor in place. It's Pilate. He's the fifth governor uh, assigned to Ju Judea since his occupation. He's got his soldiers in place. And in most things, the Jews were free to do as they wanted. Rome didn't want to get involved in their religion and their religious disputes, uh, but they just cared about keeping the peace and getting their money and on those kinds of things. So in this sense, they only would care about certain kinds of events, certain kinds of details or certain kinds of crimes, which now leads us to the third question, what crime then do the high priest charge Jesus with to Pilate? Now, you already know the crime they charged him with up in the high priest's chamber. That was the crime of blasphemy or the sin of blasphemy. However, blasphemy is not the kind of crime that Pilate is going to care one bit about. Again, generally speaking, Rome tries to stay out of these kinds of religious matters or disputes. But as you begin to look at verse 2, you get a clue that the charge of blasphemy has been reworked. It's been massaged a little bit in order to be presented to Pilate in such a way that he would be interested. Apparently, they tell Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be a king. A king. In fact, uh, we can confirm this by looking at Luke's recording of the charge as, as written in Luke chapter 23. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, you know, just think about this for a moment. The only part of this charge that is technically true is the part where they say that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, right? Because he did. We just read that in Mark 14, verse 62. He claimed to them to be the Christ. Um, the Jewish leaders don't believe that statement. So I guess that would explain why they say he's misleading the nation, because they think he's telling other people this and 
clearly this is a lie, then he's misleading them. And the idea that he is forbidding people from paying taxes is either simply made up in order to get Pilate's attention, or I think more likely it's an extrapolation off of this idea of what they mean for someone to be the Christ. If you're the Christ, then you're a king, and what king would ever allow his people to pay taxes to another king? That doesn't even make sense, right? If you're a king, your people pay taxes to you. So if Jesus is the king, clearly he's going to forbid them from paying taxes to Caesar. Pilate, you should take notice of this, which means then that effectively... What they're charging him with to Pilate is not blasphemy, it's treason. Something Pilate would be very interested in. This is, this is their case. Claiming to be the Christ is, is blasphemy to the Jews and it's treason to the Romans. So now the trial begins. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, you've been accused of being this. Do you think you're that? Puts the accusation to Jesus, gives Jesus a chance to defend himself. Jesus answered him, you have said so, which is a really hard phrase to translate in English. We don't exactly have a, um, an equivalent expression. It's almost like if you say, or you know, whatever you just said is fine. It, it's neither confirming nor denying the statement. It's just sort of putting it out there. You can, you've said this, I'll leave it there. And the chief priests now continue accusing him of many things. And apparently as they're doing this and Jesus is standing there, Jesus is just being quiet. I mean, just picture him bound in chains. You know, he's got handcuffs, he's got shackles, whatever. And there are the surrounding him. Da, 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 da. And Jesus is just quiet. And Pilate's seen a lot of trials, no doubt. He's seen a lot of men who are being accused of a lot of crimes. And he must have never seen anything quite like this. Pilate, in verse 4, again asks him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was, was amazed. No attempt on his part to defend himself whatsoever beyond this point. He just stands there quietly, allowing this travesty of justice to take its course. Now, let's pause at this point and put ourselves into the story a little bit. And, and I, I'm going to ask you to think about something very deeply for a moment before we come back into the text, because this is kind of critical, I think, to the end of where this is going. Here's the question. If you had been there, okay, can you picture the scene first? Can you see Jesus standing there bound before Pilate, the priest around him? Can you picture the moment? If you had been there, if you had been a bystander, either at this point in Jesus' trial or in the previous one, as they're in the high priest's chamber, and, and if you had known all the details about this case that you know right now, what would you have done? Okay, don't answer out loud, but contemplate that for just a moment. What would you have done? You're just standing there. You're not involved. You're listening. You're hearing. You're a fly on the wall. You're a bystander who knows the truth about what's going on. What would you do? If I go back uh, to the Stephen Avery example that I used last week for just a moment, the thing about that particular case that is so interesting to me is not so much the story itself, but rather the response that it has evoked publicly for this man. 
Again, whether the man is, is guilty or innocent, I don't know. But, but do you realize there was a petition submitted at whitehouse.gov to ask President Obama to pardon this guy? And before the White House shut it down, it already had 129,950 signatures asking for, for this one man's pardon. We're talking about a 10-year-old murder case in the state of Wisconsin that prior to this documentary, hardly anybody knew about. And yet, all of a sudden, now people watch this documentary, and all of a sudden, 130,000 people feel the need to do something, even if it's just to sign the petition, on an electronic petition on the White House website. Why would people do that? Well, I think it's because people are, generally speaking, moved by injustice. When you see something that you genuinely feel is unjust, there's something in you that just... You want to do something. You want to say something. You want to act. It, you get angry. You get mad. And you, you just feel this compulsion to, to do something. So back to this story now. We have a, a terrible injustice underway. And here you are now. You're a bystander in one of the two rooms. You know what you know about the true merits of this case. What would you do? Well, it's interesting that in Mark's presentation here of both phases of the trial, after each phase is presented in its basic components, he shows us what various bystanders do. So, for example, after phase one, Mark takes us down into the courtyard of the high priest to show us how one particular bystander is going to respond. And this, of course, is Peter. When we last saw Peter, he had summoned up the courage to follow Jesus from afar. He had made it as, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, he's now sitting there in the courtyard, warming himself in the fire. And in verse 50, or 66, we see what comes of that. And I'm just going to read the whole thing just without stopping and then make a couple of comments. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denies it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He goes out into the gateway, rooster crows the first time. The servant girl sees him and again begins to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. And again, he denies it. And after a little while, the bystanders now again say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear I do not know this man of whom you speak. Immediately, the rooster crows now a second time. And Peter remembers how Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he breaks down and weeps. This is bystander response number one, folks, and it is not an encouraging response. I mean, Peter one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the, the inner circle even, not just one of the 12, he's one of the three, a, a man who knew who Jesus truly was, who had confessed it to him in that great moment. A man who knew what was going on upstairs in the chamber, that it was wrong, that Jesus is innocent, that he is being framed. He knows all of these things, and yet when he is confronted by a servant girl who, in that culture, would only be above a tax collector and a leper. Peter, as a free Jewish male, would look down on someone like her. When he is confronted by her, he cowers in fear and denies his Lord. 
denies his friend not once, but three times just as Jesus has said. So much for being able to count on your friends. You see a second example of bystander reaction after the second phase of the trial. You know, the last thing we saw there in chapter 15, verse 5, was Jesus shackled, standing silently before Pilate as he's being accused of all this stuff, and Pilate's amazed at the spectacle that's going on before him. And in verse 6, we, we pick up the scene with Mark pausing to give us two points of background information that now become extremely important to understanding the story correctly. Point number one is in verse 6 when he tells us, Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them, the Jewish people, one prisoner for whom they asked. Now this is not like some Roman tradition or something he has to do. Why he started doing this, I don't know. Probably just to be... Uh, uh, to engender goodwill with the Jewish people. They like it when I do this, and I kind of like them to like it because it keeps life easy for me. So he's got this little tradition that's going on. One prisoner gets to go free. Point number two, verse seven. And among the rebels in prison at this particular moment who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, again, we know nothing about this guy Barabbas outside of what we see in this verse and in the other Gospels uh, and what the, the gospel writers record about him. Mark, Mark refers to him as being a rebel who was involved in an act of insurrection. And the word insurrection there should probably get underlined or at least noted in your mind because it's a loaded term. It's, <laughs> what is insurrection? It's an act of rebellion, of official like rebellion against the, the governing authorities. So this is some kind of an attempt that he was involved in to overthrow Roman rule, this attempt was serious, as is shown by the fact that he and apparently others were willing to commit murder. How many people were killed in this insurrection, I don't know, but Barabbas has killed probably Romans or at least Jews who were uh, in, in cahoots with the Romans. He's killed people in order to accomplish his plan. However, he and whoever he was involved with were obviously unsuccessful in this process because they have been arrested and they are in prison. And I suspect, though I cannot prove and have no evidence to suggest apart from one little detail, I, I suspect that Barabbas isn't just one of a crowd. I kind of suspect that he's the leader of this particular insurrection because otherwise, why would anyone have even known his name? Like if he's just part of a mob, remember Joe, the guy in the middle of the mob scene who was attacking, like no one knows Joe, but if Barabbas is the guy who was standing up front saying, charge the gates, everyone's going to know Barabbas. He's kind of like a folk hero, sort of a of an approach. That's how at least I think I envision him. So, so do you understand these two points of clarification that Mark has given us here? Because they, they become important now. Because with that background information, let's notice that the next group of bystanders now enters the scene. And who are the bystanders now? It is the who? The crowd. If you're new to Cornerstone and you haven't been with me very long in Mark, then you may not know this detail. Okay, but for all the rest of you, you'll remember this. Just give me a second to refresh the, other, the newbies. In Mark's gospel, crowds are generally not a good thing for Jesus. Okay? So like, and this is so hard for us to understand because if we left here today and people said, well, how was your church service? Like, were there a lot of people there? And we're like, oh, there were huge crowds. People were like, wow, that's great. Uh, Jesus in Mark is not thrilled about crowds because at best, crowds are neutral towards him, but more generally, they're negative towards him. 
And here is an example where they are the, the negativist of the negative, if we could say it that way. The, 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 the crowd enters the scene, and the crowd comes up and begins to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, to, to let a prisoner go. And so he answers them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And, and, and I just would make a personal observation here that as you read about Pilate in the Gospels, it's clear that he understands what's really going on here. Like he's going to even, Mark's, Mark's going to make that point in verse 10. But, but in relation to this question specifically, I, I half wonder if he expected the crowd to have the same response to injustice that, that 130,000 people had to the Stephen Avery documentary. If he expected them to go, wait, this is totally wrong. This guy is innocent. You know, hey, we can't just stand here and do nothing. We should call for this guy's release. I half expect that he, he thought the crowd would petition him to release Jesus and stop this travesty of injustice. Anyway, continuing, he, he asks them this for he perceives that it's out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But, unfortunately... The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And so rather, rather than calling for justice like you might expect these bystanders to do, they become a part of the injustice by calling, clamoring for, shouting for the release of Barabbas instead. And again, from, from looking at all four of the Gospels, I'm not sure that Pilate expected that response. You know, in verses 12 to 14, you see something that must have been somewhat unusual for a Roman governor to do. I, I don't have any proof of that, but I'm just envisioning how politics and government works today. And I don't see the president of the United States in a similar setting trying to reason with masses of people. Like, you just don't do that. They would be below him. So in verses 12 to 14... Pilate begins to engage the crowd in conversation. Not the chief priest now. He's, he's, he's engaging the crowd, and it almost sounds like he's attempting to defend Jesus to them. He asks them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd responds, crucify him. And Pilate says to them, why? Why? What evil has he done? What real crime has he committed that you would call for his death? Why? He just, he wants an explanation from the crowd as to this, this bloodlust that you're hearing from them. And yet they shout all the more, crucify him. And the scene is beginning to get out of hand. As you compare the four Gospels, you see the crowd is really beginning to get worked up. Matthew tells us even that it looked like a riot is about to break out over this, which if you're Pilate, and put yourself now in his shoes for just a moment, if you're Pilate, the last thing you want in the city of Jerusalem during the week of Passover, when it is filled to capacity with somewhere between 100 and 300,000 Jews, and you have 3,000 soldiers at best at your command, and probably not even all of them are in the city with you, the last thing you want at that moment is a riot. A main component of his job is to keep the peace, right? That's one of the main things a Roman governor has to do, just to keep the peace. And if he lets this thing out of get, uh, get out of hand, it could get real ugly real fast, and that could cause real trouble for him. 
So the question for Pilate is, is putting an innocent man to death worth it to preclude all of that? Is it worth it? And for Pilate, the answer is yes. It is clearly worth sentencing a man that he knows is innocent. He knows it. He, he knows why the chief priests are doing this. Remember, he and Caiaphas have a relationship already anyway. So who knows what kind of back scratching is going on in the midst of this too. He, he knows Jesus is innocent, but he is willing to put him to death in order to serve his own ends. It's good politics, it's good for his career, and it may be even good for his life. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, that's the, that's the line that's the damning line here. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And I'm not going to address the topic of scourging today. We'll cover that next week. All I want you to focus on right now is that verse 15 represents the conviction and, and sentencing of Jesus. Trial is over. Jesus has been found guilty. And he has been sentenced to immediate execution. So, now, finally... Last week, this week, put them all together. We finally come to the question that I started with last time, I started again with today, and the question was this. Who is at fault in this travesty of justice that leads to Jesus' sentencing or conviction and execution? And I'm going to give you some options here to let you think through them. Option number one, is it the Jews? Or, to be more specific, is it the religious leaders of the Jews. Now, there have been many people over the years who would say, yes, that is exactly who is at fault here. And because uh, they answer it in that way, at least some of them, if not many of those people, have used that belief as a justification for their anti-Semitism. I don't really get anti-Semitism, I'll be honest, right? Be specifically when people are, are like, I'm anti-Semitic because I'm a Christian. Like, how do you say on one hand, I love Jesus, but I hate Jews? Jesus is a Jew, so these don't seem to go together. I don't know. I'm not the sharpest blade in the drawer. I know that, but still, I guess, I guess, thank you. I guess um, when you're talking about racism, though, specifically, logic has never been a major component of that process anyway, so maybe that explains why that doesn't work. But anyway, it is true, is it not, to say that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were involved in the murder of Jesus. They had plotted it for possibly years, but definitely weeks and months. They had plotted it. They had hired Judas to uh, betray him. They're the ones who arrested him. They're the ones who charged him with blasphemy and treason. And they do all of this as the religious leaders of Israel. Even as we saw last week, trying to obey the law as they murder him, right? It's, it's, it's ironic and it's crazy, but this is... This isn't just a random group of thugs. These are the guys who were considered to be the most spiritual people. They're the, they're the face of organized religion in first century Palestine. And they are clearly involved, so are they at fault? Um, maybe, but they didn't nail them to the cross, right? They're not the ones who actually passed the sentence. They didn't, they couldn't. So what do you do with that? So then is Pilate at fault? 
I mean, this is the guy who, for both political and personal reasons, knowingly executes an innocent man. What is it? What does it say about you when you're willing to personally, purposefully, excuse me, execute a person that you know is innocent? What does that say about you as an individual? He's not tricked into this, folks. He ends up agreeing with the Jewish leaders that it is worth it for Jesus to die in order to keep his own power. He's just like them. Same motivation even. And why they want Jesus dead, he wants it too. As a representative of Roman law and justice, as a representative of the Roman government, he was the one who was supposed to stand up for justice. And he totally lets it go. Instead, he signs the execution order for a man he knows is not guilty, so he's clearly involved. Um, how about Peter? I don't talk much about Peter at fault in the death of Jesus, but let's talk about it for a moment. Is he at fault? Um, he's there in the courtyard. He, he could have been down there. Just, again, picture the moment. He could have been down there pleading with the, the men and women who are gathered around this fire and working in this house saying, he's not guilty. Listen, this is, this is trumped up charges. This, this is wrong. We need to stop this. He could have been pleading. He could have attempted at least to get into the room where the trial is happening to act as a defense witness for Jesus. But what does he do? Not only does he not defend Jesus, had he just done that, it would have been bad enough, but but he actively denies him three times before all those men and women in the courtyard that he should have been trying to convince of Jesus' innocence. Peter here, one of, one of Jesus' own disciples, and an insider, could have tried to spare our Lord's life in some way, shape, or form. Instead, he only focuses on saving his own life. Um, as a side note to this one, I didn't want to make a new point. It kind of falls under the same uh, question. You know, where are the rest of the disciples right now? The only two disciples that we know that, that made it back to the high priest's place eventually there were Peter and John. You learn about John coming there in John chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. And, and if I could just pick on John for a moment, remember that, that James and John, I have argued in the past, are probably cousins of Jesus. They're probably his family members. Very likely, I think 99% probability they are. So here John, as a member of Jesus' own family, He's never recorded as saying or doing a single thing. Not once. So Peter and, and John are there, but John's doing nothing. Peter is denying. Judas has killed himself by this point. The other nine are off hiding who knows where, and there's one naked guy running around. That's all we know right now, right? No help. None of them. So are they at fault? None of them step in to help. They all knowingly abandon Jesus to his fate. They know what's going to happen. So they're clearly involved. Hey, what about the crowds? Are the crowds at fault? Crowds have followed Jesus all throughout Mark's gospel. They, they gather to hear his teaching. They have seen his miracles. Um, just a few days prior to this moment, we, we tend to forget because we've been in it so long, but just a few days before this moment, they had gathered on the pathway leading into the temple complex shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who brings the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You remember this moment? These are messianic phrases where they're saying effectively, publicly in the hearing of anyone who would listen, Jesus is the Messiah. The crowds expect that. They believe that about him on that day. And now today they're shouting, crucify him. 
I mean, if they really believe he's the Christ, why don't they shout out to Pilate, hey, we think he's the Messiah, give him some time to do his thing. They could. They could call out for justice at this moment. Pilate has asked them directly, and they don't. And again, it's just a quick side note, not a new note, but a side note to this one. Think about who the crowd chooses in Jesus' place. Think about Barabbas for a moment, because we haven't thought carefully about Barabbas. And when you think about him carefully, you're going to be a little taken aback by this. If you will consider it for a moment, you will realize that Barabbas isn't just some random criminal, right? He's, he's not just a name picked out of a hat. He represents everything that the Jews actually wanted and expected from a Messiah. Uh, We've talked about this numerous times now through Mark. But what the people wanted the Christ to do was to lead a rebellion against Rome, to overthrow their rule, to reign then in victory, restore Israel to its rightful place of power and prestige amongst the nations, and to establish righteousness in the land. They wanted a conquering king, not a suffering king. They wanted someone who would take action, who would lead a rebellion, not someone who's going to stand there in handcuffs before a a Gentile governor. When he was riding in on a donkey, Jesus looked very messianic, and now standing there like this, he doesn't look so messianic anymore. And they turn on him. In this sense, then, the crowd isn't just rejecting Jesus. They are doing that, but it's not, it's not just that. They are making a statement as to the kind of king they really want. And Barabbas reflects that better than Jesus does. They would rather have a man committed to overthrowing Roman rule and willing to take up arms and shed blood if needed to do that, not someone like Jesus. Barabbas is their ideal messiah. So then, who's at fault? Um, here's a list I compiled. See if I've about got it right. I said uh, Jews are at fault. Gentiles are at fault. The government is at fault. Family is at fault. Religion, organized religion is at fault. Nations are at fault. Peoples are at fault. Groups are at fault. Individuals are at fault. Men are at fault. Women are at fault. Insiders are at fault. Outsiders are at fault. Does that pretty much sum up who's at fault? In effect, what you see in the trial of Jesus is that every single aspect of humanity and of human society is at fault in this case. It is not just one sliver of humanity. Boy, would we like it to be that so we could say it's not us. It is every single aspect of humanity that is at fault, and that does include us. Because the truth of the matter is that none of these people and none of these groups are murdering Jesus. Let's be really clear. I've I've used this language, but done it to get to this point. Jesus is not being murdered. He is not a victim. At any moment, he could choose to just break these chains apart, reveal himself for who he truly is, Flaming swords kill all of the evil people around him, and he demonstrate himself in all power in a memorable and vivid way to the crowds that were calling for his crucifixion. He could do that, could he not? That, that he chooses not to, that he just stands here silently allowing these things to happen, 
means that he is doing it, folks, for us. It's not injustice that is sending him to the cross. It is love. Think about that. He stands there. He takes the spitting. He takes the blows. He takes the accusations in love. It's it's a choice that he made before the foundation of the world to give himself as a sacrifice for for our sins. It's, It's their sins and our sins that were sending him to Golgotha, not chains or a sentence. That stuff didn't matter. It was our disobedience. It was our denials. It was our rejection. It was our pride. It was our self-interest. It was our lies. It was our inconsistencies. We're the ones accusing him. We're the ones spitting on him. We're the ones hitting him and mocking him. We are the ones calling out for his crucifixion. It is their sins and our sins that are in reality at fault. It is us It is all humanity, and Jesus knows it, and stands there still. Which means that in the end, when you read the trial, you really shouldn't be moved by the injustice of it all. You should really be moved by the love of it all. Because he allowed himself to be arrested for us, for you. Put yourself... I don't think this is inappropriate at all to picture Jesus standing there thinking of you. He he allows himself to be arrested for you to be falsely accused, for you to be spit on, for you to be hit and mocked, for you to be chained up and paraded before a human ruler, for you to be lynched by a crowd, for you to be convicted of and executed for a crime he did not commit. For you. And as we move into the crucifixion scene and we see the terrible physical and spiritual suffering of our Lord over the next three weeks, um, we're going to have to constantly remind ourselves that the only thing that is making Jesus go through this is his love for you, for me, for us. Because we deserved it, right? Nope. We were at fault. Because we've shown so much loyalty to him and obedience to God and, you know, because we were at fault. Rather, he does this because of his own purpose, love, and grace towards us, the innocent one willingly dying for the guilty so that we could be forgiven. This isn't injustice. I mean, it is, but it isn't. This is the greatest message that the world has ever heard. It's love and hope that humanity can be made right with the God against whom they sin, and it demands a response, not to sign a petition, It's not that kind of response, but to bow our knees before this one who's taking our place. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, God is calling you to repent of your sins, to acknowledge who you are before him as a criminal who deserved this punishment. And he is reminding you that he has made a way for you not to endure that punishment. That Jesus has taken your place. If you repent of your sins and you place your hope and faith in Jesus alone, you can be reconciled to God. And if you are a believer here today, God is calling you to no longer live your life for yourself. Like I talked about earlier, for all the stuff of this world, no, to live your life for the one who willingly chose in love to give his life for you. The time for us being bystanders has passed. It is time to choose. We bow your heads and pray.
Jesus, we, we see you standing here in the high priest chamber before Pilate. You stand there silently. You, you stand there taking the accusations, taking the shame. You could have done anything. You, all power is yours. To think that the all-powerful God of creation is held by handcuffs is, is almost laughable. Yet you stand there, silent, taking it all. Why? We are not lovable. There's nothing in us that is worth that kind of, of response or treatment. We deserve to be the ones standing there. We deserve the accusations because to us they would have been true. We deserve the spitting and the hits and the death. It, that was all rightly ours. You, not for you. This was all unjust. Unjust. It, it, it shouldn't have been, and yet you stood there and took it. And so I would just ask Jesus that you will help us to see how at fault we are in this moment. That it is our sin that has you standing there, but it is also your great love for us. That, this isn't something to walk out of here and feel guilty about. It's something to walk out of here and rejoice in, that you have loved us so much, that we have been forgiven because of these choices that you have made in love for us. And if you endured all of this, knowing full well in advance the kind of people you were dying for, then why do we fear now? What, what could possibly change your view of us? What could possibly affect the way you see us? You died for us understanding exactly the kind of people you were dying for. We as people would choose many different messiahs, but you are the only one that matters. You're the only one we need. So we acknowledge that this morning. If there's someone in this room who is not a believer, I pray that our time in your word today and continuing through this section, that through that you will, you will call that person to yourself, that you will make their heart restless, begin to trouble their heart and mind with, with these questions of who are you and what do you demand of us and can we meet those demands? Is there anything we can do on our own? Help them to see, open their eyes to understand that it is only through repentance and faith that man can be reconciled to God. And for those of us in here who are believers, I pray that through this we will be reminded that we are not to live the rest of our lives for ourselves, but for the one who willingly gave his life for us. So Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Apply it now, Spirit, to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.